Hello and welcome to the Locked On Canucks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. I'm Justin Morissette, and this is your Locked On Canucks for Thursday, December 5th. Uh, first of all, my apologies that this is the first you're hearing from me this week, but uh, some of you may know, some of you might not. I am pretty thoroughly involved in uh, junior and high school football here uh, in BC, in the lower mainland in particular, both in the CJFL and the high school ranks as well. Uh, and uh, big month, November for me. I look forward to it all year long. It's the month of the year where I get to do the most play-by-play that I do at any time of the year, but it's also a very exhausting time as well. Three straight Saturdays in BC Place when combined with my other jobs where I wind up working anywhere between 12 and 16 hour days. And uh, I had basically run myself ragged, was just absolutely exhausted, needed to take a little quick break to recharge and, and get my batteries reset and get myself right, look after myself a little bit. But I am back with you to talk about this team, talk about the Vancouver Canucks, everything that's gone on with them over the course of the last several days here. We're going to talk today about what we learned from the Edmonton series, the back-to-backs this past Saturday and Sunday. We're going to talk about, of course, uh, the results from a fantastic game on Wednesday night against the Ottawa Senators, as well as the Canucks inducted Alex Burrows into the Ring of Honor, the first of many uh, kind of uh, nights this season where uh, legends of the past get honored during the 50th anniversary celebrations. Very much looking forward to Sedin week as well. That's still a couple months ahead of us, but uh, a a fabulous evening on Wednesday. And uh, I want to take some time in the final segment of the program today to just talk about Alex Burroughs himself and uh, his history and trajectory as a player, the improbability of his career as a whole that he would wind up uh, being honored in the Ring of Honor by the Canucks on Wednesday night and just what he's meant to me as someone who uh, kind of was in the prime of my fandom watching him uh, come up from the AHL and uh, make a name for himself uh, in the pros at the NHL level uh, to be a part of basically one of the uh, greatest scoring lines uh, in the history of this franchise, certainly, and one of the most potent scoring lines in the entire NHL uh, in this modern era. So uh, a really heartwarming story for Alex Burroughs, even if fans in other cities and media in other cities might never understand what we had, what we got to enjoy from this player uh, during his many, many years, 12, 13 years or so in the Vancouver system. Uh, just fantastic. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to talk about that. But first, let's dive in to the games from this past weekend. Take you back to the Sunday game and the Saturday game as well. A home and home series with the Edmonton Oilers. The Edmonton Oilers who are currently sitting atop of the Pacific Division and second place in the West behind only the St. Louis Blues. What did we learn from these games is my question. And I will tell you the answers as well. First and foremost, we learned that Quinn Hughes is incredible. And I know that some of you will say you already knew that, but I think he really hit a height, especially in the Saturday game in Edmonton, uh, as a defender. Never mind a guy who can put up points. Never mind a guy who is putting up uh, points as a rookie that are set to smash records here in this city, uh, as I mentioned uh, on the last episode, you know, we we knew that. We knew that he's an offensive dynamo. We knew that he's great at walking the line on the blue line. We knew that he's great at quarterback in the power play and putting up points in situations like that. He acquitted himself defensively on Saturday night against the Oilers 
in a 5-2 victory uh, on Hockey Night in Canada in such a way that, look, I talked about this back at the home opener. If you go all the way back, not the home opener, sorry, the season opener. If you go all the way back to the first game of the season, you saw Quinn Hughes learn a lesson in real time and apply it within the same game. He tried to take the body to separate Leon Dreisaitl from the puck earlier in that game in the season opener. It didn't work for him. He got shrugged off and launched onto the ice by a bigger body than he was able to handle trying to take the puck physically, and he made an adjustment within that game to be smarter with his stick. Can I muscle a guy off the puck? No, but I can use my speed and I can use my stick to take it from them. Nevertheless, he almost did it off uh, uh, that goal that wound up being the game winner in the season opener by poking the puck off of the stick of Connor McDavid. Unfortunately, a very fortuitous one-in-a-million bounce put that puck right back onto McDavid's stick after Hughes got good contact on it. That lesson has been learned multiple times and has been put into practice already multiple times by Quinn Hughes over the course of the season, but I don't think it's ever been as fully on display as it has been uh, in that game on Saturday night in Edmonton where, uh, you know, Alex Edler leaves that game and has not played since and according to Travis Green, is you know not going to even be reevaluated until two weeks from now. When it's all said and done, Alex Edler set to miss a minimum of two and a half to three weeks here in Vancouver. And in years previous, this would be the beginning of the fall, a precipitous drop that Vancouver would not be able to recover from. Something like the November that they suffered through uh, last season. I can't remember off the top of my head if Edler was injured during that stretch, but I do believe that he was, uh, if memory serves correct. All these games start to bleed together, and when I try to think of injury scenarios in previous seasons, it's hard to get it straight, but I'm pretty sure Edler was missing for a good many games during last year's just awful November because there was nobody there to step in and fill that role when he was out of the lineup. Not only does Vancouver now have someone in Quinn Hughes who's capable of stepping in and filling those minutes, he's capable of filling those minutes in a way that is even better than Alex Edler because there is no doubt at this point that Quinn Hughes is the best defenseman on this team, not just offensively, but defensively as well. He is doing so well, in fact, that this pairing that Travis Green has put together of putting uh, his big behemoth defender in Tyler Myers with Quinn Hughes is actually miraculously working very well. It's something that we harped on quite a bit over the course of November, that the the glow of uh, a great signing that it looked like Tyler Myers was going to prove to be had fallen off a little bit. Uh, the shine had had come off of that rose. I don't know if that that's probably not the... Uh, the, the rose had wilted. Well, that might be the phrase. I can't remember what the shine comes off of as an idiom. But regardless, the shine was coming off of Tyler Myers. It looks like it's been restored a little bit here playing with Quinn Hughes because Quinn Hughes is the lake of rejuvenation. You just take a bath in his waters and you come out looking much better than you did before. That has certainly been the case with you know, Chris Tanev even earlier this season, who looked like a, a much younger version of himself after it seemed like Chris Tanev's wheels had completely fallen off as a defensive defenseman. And when you look at his underlying statistics last season, it was not very good. It did not look very good for him. He looked he looked like an over-the-hill defenseman whose time had come. Well, you pair him with Quinn Hughes, that's no longer the case. Tyler Myers has a great October against a lighter you know, competition and on on an easier schedule, 
you put him against a more difficult schedule, playing with Alex Edler in these huge minutes as Edler played, you know, as I've said many, many times on the show, far too many minutes during Vancouver's problem stretch throughout the month of November. The shine came off him. You do exactly what you did with Tanev. You pair him with Quinn Hughes, and all of a sudden, even Tyler Myers looks better again because Quinn Hughes is the man here, as you know, while he talked about with David Quadrelli on the show a couple weeks ago, as David wrote uh, on Canucks.com as part of the Botchford Project, Quinn Hughes has changed everything on this defense in much the same way that Elias Pettersson changed the forward group last season. And it's been not quite as perceptible, perhaps, as the change that Elias Pettersson had because this was a team that was starving up front for anyone to come in and fill that kind of role. And obviously the defense has been barren on some level over the last few seasons as well. But it got a complete makeover this past offseason. You bring in Hughes full-time. You sign Tyler Myers. You sign Jordy Ben. When you have all these changes at once and the D as a whole improves the way it has, it's hard to pinpoint one exact guy who's been the catalyst for all of that change. Well, as we get further into the season, it's more and more clear, game by game by game, not only is he doing things that wow you, not only is he a treat to watch on a night-in and night-out basis, but Quinn Hughes, my goodness. Alex Edler is gone for at least three weeks. It will not affect this team at all. And if Hughes has been delivering the goods in a significant way over the last couple games here, really over the last several weeks, he had a bit of a quiet period in November, but he's been right back on track. He's delivering the goods. You know who else delivers? My friends at DoorDash. Treat yourself to the meal that you deserve and have your favorite restaurants come to you with DoorDash. Right now, our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter the promo code LOCKEDON. Listing on the go, if you can't visit DoorDash right now, you can find this and all other offers from Locked On sponsors at LockedOnPodcasts.com slash offers. Oh, boy. I I don't even know if I'm going to have time to get to all that I wanted to talk about today, which is fine. Uh, We got some days between games here. I can leave some Alex Burroughs discussion for tomorrow and two more episodes after this one before the Canucks are back in action against the Buffalo Sabres on Saturday night. But uh, let's move on to what else we learned during this Ottawa series, because I think what else we learned is that this team has better depth than people want to give it credit for. I harped on this a little bit last week, some takes that I'd seen floating around uh, on podcasts and on my Twitter feed. And look, when I when I come at you for a take that I don't agree with, I don't want it to seem like I don't respect these people, that I don't uh, like the people that are floating things out here. It's okay to amicably disagree. That's all I'm trying to do. I don't think you're a moron for believing these things. I still have respect for the people who are putting their opinions out there and being a part of Canucks discourse. But, but, I saw some takes that really cheesed me off last week, specifically about the Canucks depth skaters, uh, two guys in particular in Josh Levo and Tanner Pearson. Pearson has a four-point night against the Oilers, really powers the Canucks to victory, being a huge part of that win on Saturday night in Edmonton. Josh Levo with a nifty goal in that game as well. And this all just came days after I saw people expressing uh, 
on social media and on message boards and on po- podcasts, the idea that both of those players are fourth line wingers. And I really think people need to check their expectations of what depth scores are supposed to do in the NHL if you believe that that is the case. Because Tanner Pearson right now is on pace with the Canucks to have a 51-point season. And I'm sorry, that is not second-line production. That is not third-line production. That is not fourth-line production. Absolutely not fourth-line production. That is actually fringe first-line production in the NHL because let's break this down mathematically, folks. Let's look at how the, the, the sausage is made as far as NHL scoring goes. You have... 31 teams, which means you have three first-line spots on a roster per team. There are then, therefore, 93 first-line roster spots in the NHL. And if you want to get technical and break down what is expected of a first-line player in the National Hockey League, I'm not even excluding defensemen from this discussion. I'm not filtering out uh, of the results High-scoring defenders who put up upwards of 50 points into the 70-point range. There are certainly a handful of those in the National Hockey League. If you just look at the 2018-19 scoring race in the National Hockey League and you go all the way down to 90th overall in the scoring standings, you know how many points 90th in the NHL put up last year? There's a bunch of different guys who are tied in that range, but they all put up 53 points, which means 51-point player Tanner Pearson is not a fourth-line player. He is not a third-line player. He is practically a first-line player, and there's no better example of that, guys who are first-liners who put up 50 points, than the guy who got his name up there in the Ring of Honor on Wednesday night. Alex Burroughs is that exact player. Am I saying that Tanner Pearson is Alex Burroughs? No. Am I saying that Josh Levo is Alex Burroughs? No. But I do think people need to get a grip a little bit here in this city and realize that not every first-line player is a 100-point dynamo. You know, 70 points is first-line production. Expecting that your second-line player, your second-line center is going to put up 70 points is outrageous. Just because Ryan Kessler did it once when the Canucks were one of the best teams in hockey, if not the very best team that didn't win the cup in that era, you cannot think that that is typical of a second-line player. Bo Horvat right now is a first-line player who happens to anchor Vancouver's second line. You know, it's just insane to look at these guys and think that they're ideally suited to be a fourth-line player on a contending team. Are they streaky? Yes, certainly. Are they as consistent as you might like? Maybe not. But if they were, you know what they would be? Dynamite first-line players that you are paying upwards of $6 million a season. A 25-goal scorer is a guy that doesn't score in at least 57 games. You know, that is... That's just what it is. If guys were more consistent and they put up points on a regular basis, they'd be 80-point players and you'd be paying them a whole heck of a lot more. Tanner Pearson was a second-line winger on a team that won the Stanley Cup. He was a pivotal part of that 70s line with Jeff Carter. You know, you, you don't... 
you can't look at him and say that time is forgotten. He was a, he was a very young guy. He was maybe in his second year in the league when that team won the cup. He was drafted with the 30th overall draft pick that the Kings received in 2012 because they won the cup that year. He has been an important player to championship teams or at least one championship team anyway in the past. He has been a second line player on that team and is he he might not be as consistent as he might like, but that's depth scorers right across the board. Your hope is that you have a wide array of depth scorers and they don't all dry up at once because nobody is going to be consistently delivering the kind of results that people are expecting from some of these guys. And Josh Levo is a very useful player, a kind of player who is doing the hard work to make other people's success possible. Everyone who plays with Josh Levo does better. 30 points is completely acceptable from a third-line player on a very good team. This team, you know, gets better production from its depth players than people want to give credit. Just because that production might all dry up at once, it doesn't mean that they're all bad players. It just means the depth scoring is hitting a dry spell. They can't all be consistently producing game after game after game, or they wouldn't be depth scorers. They'd be stars on another team. Saturday was such a magical night, in fact, that some of that depth scoring came from Louis Erickson, of all people, which was very nice to see because I don't think Louis has quite hit underdog status. People are still kind of desperately licking their chops at the idea that he's going to retire. And I hope that scoring a goal on Saturday against the Oilers uh, did not incentivize him to think that, oh, maybe I'll stick around and see this thing through because he should still retire. And there have been whispers in the Whisper Network, whispers that have been taken to air by uh, Sat Shaw and others here in Vancouver, Irfan Gaffar as well, guys who have heard that, you know, people who've spoken to Louis believe that he is thinking about stepping away from the game, that he does not want to put his body uh, through the rigors of NHL training and NHL travel if he's not going to be playing a whole heck of a lot. So that is a problem contract that might just evaporate out of Vancouver's hair perhaps by the end of this season, possibly even before the end of this season. I would assume after the end of this season, but hey, we'll, we'll find out on this one. And even if he sticks around, you know, I was impressed by Louis Erickson in, on Saturday night in Edmonton. I thought he did put together a pretty spirited game. He was part of a line that held Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl in check at even strength, and that is not an easy thing to do, especially on... On home ice, Leon Dreisaitl has only been held off the score sheet in five games all year. Four of those games were on the road when the road team, or the home team rather, gets the matchups that they want against that line. Uh, that line of Bo Horvat with Tanner Pearson and Louis Erickson, the first combo all season long to hold Leon Dreisaitl off the score sheet in Edmonton. So, you know, that's a little feather in Louis's cap, but I know people turned on him by the very next day because of the penalties that were called on him uh, in uh, Vancouver, in the game that Vancouver lost 3-2 to two on home ice. I feel bad for the guy because at least one of those calls was as chintzy as it gets, and, uh, you know, they, the, the refs were just looking for a reason to hand power plays to the Oilers, and I guess... Louis gave them uh, reason enough, but, you know, even the penalty that was called on him, I believe there was another one in, in Edmonton the night before. Three just unbelievably soft penalty calls in a row against Erickson, and hey, that's just 
life in the NHL sometimes, but it's sad when that thing happens to a whipping boy. And I, look, I am I'm above all people have all kinds of reasons to hate on Louis Erickson. I've slammed him up and down over the years, but credit where it's due. When a guy plays well, when he steps into the lineup and fills a role uh, in a pinch as a depth scorer uh, and and does what he did defensively and got on the score sheet as well, and you love that celebration from him, it was just good to see. And we should enjoy those moments when they happen instead of looking for immediate reasons to flip the script again and be mad at him. You know, Louis Erickson is a problem. Yes, we're stuck with him. Yes. When good things happen with him, though, I think we should enjoy him. That's all I'm saying. That brings us to Wednesday, Alex Burrow's night, a lengthy 20-minute ceremony before the game where Burrow's spoke from the heart and uh, literally spoke from the heart, not just in that he his message was heartfelt. He gave a lengthy speech with absolutely zero cue cards, and I don't think he memorized anything either. He just knew what he wanted to say and the guys that he wanted to shout out. You know, gave all kinds of love uh, to Ryan Kessler, to Roberto Luongo, uh, to Kevin Bieksa, to the Sedin twins, of course, but also to Mason Raymond, who was in the building and got a sizable ovation from Canuck Faithful. Mason Raymond, who looks like he hasn't aged a day since we last saw him. Uh, I jokingly tweeted uh, on the Locked On Twitter feed that, you know, Mason Raymond, please share your skincare routine urgently. Uh, I need to know what is keeping you looking so youthful. Not really a joke. I actually do really want to know that. Mason Raymond, if you're listening to this, which I absolutely know you are not, uh, please do share your skincare routine so we can all stay looking as youthful as you, my friend. Uh, great to see him. Just great to see Burroughs as well. Um, very emotional evening uh, right from the beginning. The the video tribute that the uh, team put together that was narrated by the Sedin twins on Alex Burroughs' just unlikely journey from an undrafted ball hockey player to, you know, one of the, the top scoring wingers on one of the top scoring lines in the entire NHL over a certain period. I mean, this was written by Jason Botchford a couple years back, but I think it was from 2009 through 2012. Uh, Alex Burroughs was second in the league in even-strength goal scoring behind only Ilya Kovalchuk, which is an incredible stat, absolutely incredible. And every, almost every single goal he scored, not all of them, of course, but a huge percentage of them were of the clutch variety. Nobody had a knack for scoring bigger goals than Alex Burroughs during a stretch of time in the Canucks history where they scored probably the most big goals that they have ever in the history of the franchise. Alex Burroughs is at the heart of so many of those key moments and fully deserving of having his name up there uh, among the greats in Rogers Arena. You know, he's not a Jersey retirement level player, but he is a huge piece of the history of this franchise and he is everything that you want a player to be the work ethic uh just the can-do spirit the 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 fact that he was going to do everything possible to make his dream come true to make the nhl in the first place and then to stay here once he got there um you know just a fantastic story a fantastic person and there's tons of people out there who you know want to cast aspersions on him and his legacy for questionable hits or questionable things he said in trash talk and heated moments on the ice and uh, being a diver and all, all things like that. Look, 
everybody dives, all right? Everybody. You cannot point to one guy and say, well, he didn't play with honor because uh, he tried to drop penalties by diving. I would ask you to watch Elias Pettersson carefully right now, uh, you know, playing for the Vancouver Canucks on a night-in and night-out basis. You tell me, do you think Elias Pettersson is diving on a night-in and night-out basis? He absolutely is because I don't want to make the case for diving being a good thing in hockey, but there's a reason why it exists at the level that it does, especially when you're a top player playing top minutes. You take all kinds of infractions that never get detected by officials, that never get called, that never get whistled. You know, guys like Kessler as well, who has his own reputation as being uh, a, a bit scummy, let's say, you know, is another guy who would get slashed and hooked and, you know, infracted on all the time. And are you going to start whipping your head? Are you going to start trying to exaggerate the effect to at least draw the attention of the official? Because that's what they're really doing. When a guy whips his head back like that, he's not overly selling the effects of the slash, he's trying to make it noticeable to the official that there was an infraction in the first place. So don't tell me that Alex Burroughs didn't play with honor or that he was, you know, uh, a player who, you know, set a bad example for kids to follow if they wanted to model their game after him, so on, etc. Antoine Roussel modeled his game on Alex Burroughs. Antoine Roussel was a player who was invited to Vancouver camp on a PTO years before he signed uh, with the Dallas Stars and became the notorious NHL pest that he was before Vancouver signed him uh, in last year's uh, free agency. Antoine Roussel, of course, a player who very much looked up to and admired Alex Burroughs as a guy who came from you know, an improbable place uh, in hockey uh, out of Quebec to rise up from the ranks the way that he did as a 19-year-old rookie in the QMJHL. Roussel has a lot of similar qualities. Roussel, a guy who came over from France to try and make it in Quebec and, uh, you know, uh, came to hockey late when he made that jump. Antoine Roussel has made a case for himself as well. He's not at the level of Alex Burroughs. He's never going to be. But when you look at the way that Burroughs inspired Roussel to be where Roussel is right now, you cannot tell me that Alex Burroughs was not a good influence. And in fact, Daniel Sedin on the broadcast on the radio side, certainly on Wednesday night, talked about the fact that when guys came up from uh, the minors, you know, the reason that Burroughs had such strong ties to Luke Bourdon and had such strong ties to Rick Rippon, the reason why he had these friendships with the young players, it's not just because Bourdon was a Quebecois player like Burroughs and that they bonded over, you know, shared uh, culture, I'm sure. It's the fact that when guys came up from the minors and they were making that jump to the show, Burroughs would always be the guy to walk them through that process, to try and uh, get them settled in the NHL and show them the ropes, show them how things are done, show them the the what it takes to make it at that level. And, and Daniel said it just came naturally to him. That's that's the guy he was. He wanted to help people. It wasn't that he you know was doing something that uh, wasn't a natural fit for him or doing something that he, because he thought he had to do it. That's just who he was. He wanted to do those things, and that's why he was so beloved by just about everybody. Bo Horvat called him one of the greatest teammates he's ever had, and I fully believe Bo when he says that as well. Um, just a fantastic player. And the Canucks paid perfect tribute to him in that game, You know, not just beating the team that uh, he was traded to a couple years back, but 
uh, beating them in a way that would make Burroughs proud because outside of Oscar Fantenberg, all four of the goals that were scored on Anders Nilsson to build a 4 nothing first period lead were scored in classic Burroughs fashion. You got Antoine Roussel going to the backhand uh, to beat uh, Anders Nilsson on his first shot of the season, on his first shift of the season. Roussel scoring a goal to start things off on Alex Burroughs' night, which is so fittingly poetic. I, I don't even need to outline the ways why that is the case. But beyond that, you've got a handful of goals that were all either the result of a slap pass uh, that was just, you know, knocked in or deflected or tapped in. You basically have three tap-in goals and uh, a deflection. And and isn't that the way that Alex Burroughs scored just about every goal in his career, certainly during his time playing with the Sedin Twins, those four goals in a row that we got to see on Wednesday night, scored by Antoine Roussel, Tanner Pearson, Elias Pettersson, and Zach McEwen getting his first NHL goal in the game as well. Just a, a perfect homage to the way that Burroughs used to score and uh, a perfect salute to the man as well, who came into the dressing room and spoke to the team about an hour or so before the pregame ceremony uh, when they were going through their pregame routines in the locker room, it was important for Travis Green to have Burroughs come in and talk about all of the qualities that he had as a player that got him to a point in his career where he would be honored the way that he was on Wednesday night. Of course, I have so much more to say about Alex Burroughs as a player and the lessons learned uh, and and the way that uh, Travis Green handled his roster in that huge victory uh 5-2 over one of the oh yes the league's lower ranked teams but a team that has been very very entertaining this season and isn't quite as lowly as they were expected to be coming into the year in the Ottawa Senators the good news is as i mentioned earlier i've got a couple more episodes of the show this week before we see more action on saturday night i'll be back with you on Friday morning, Saturday morning, and Sunday morning to break down the game against the Buffalo Sabres, a game where the Canucks will once more be rocking the flying skate jersey. So look forward to those. Might even be joined by some high-profile guests to talk a little Alex Burroughs over the next couple days here as well. So fingers crossed on that front, and uh, I will talk to you then. One more thing before I go. It always helps the show, as I've mentioned many, many times, if you rate and review the program Wherever you get it, uh, give us a little boost in the Apple uh, podcast rankings. Helps other people find the podcast and enjoy it for themselves. And it's nice for me to read what you have to say. So if you have a nice thing to say to me, if you uh, enjoy the show, when I do get around to putting it out, and it will be more regular going forward now that my football schedule has ended, I do want to be clear about that, uh, then I would love to read what you think about this program if you want to read me, uh, or leave me rather, a little review in the Apple Podcasts app or wherever you happen to get the program. Um, until tomorrow, uh, when I'm back to do this all over again with more thoughts on Wednesday night and perhaps a look ahead to Saturday as well, I have been and will continue to be Justin Morissette, and you've been locked in on Locked On Canucks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network.